In 2 Timothy 3, 16, verse 16 and 17, Scripture says this about itself. It says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When speaking of itself, Scripture says it is God breathed, it is inspired, it is as if God himself breathed out the very words of scripture into the hearts and hands of the men who wrote it down. It's living, it's active, it's not just words on a page, it's static, it is a book that changes lives. Statistically, however, every single year we get further and further away from the Bible, fewer and fewer people read it. Fewer and fewer people believe that the word of God, scripture, the Bible, whatever word you want to use there is biblically reliable and accurate and true. And and we think, oh yeah, that makes sense, right? We live in a time where fewer and fewer people every single year are believing in Jesus, so naturally there is going to be less and less people who believe the Bible to be accurate and true and reliable. But not just that, among church-attending Christians who attend on a regular basis, Even they believe the Bible year after year is less reliable and less true. Maybe you're here this morning and that's where you find yourself. You have kind of been wrestling with the scripture. Maybe you you are a Christ follower yourself. You believe in Jesus or maybe you don't. Maybe you're checking out this whole God thing or maybe you're fully committed to him but you have questions, you have wrestlings, you have struggles with what scripture says about itself and how reliable and how true it really is. Maybe you thought it's old and outdated. The things that it says doesn't apply to me in the 21st century. Maybe you've thought, yeah, I get that we have this this holy book, this Bible, this scripture, but there's so many contradictions in it, right? There's there's these times where the, the Bible says one thing, and then later on, years later, it says what seems to be almost the opposite, and it just feels like it it changed its mind and it, it doesn't really make sense. It contradicts itself. Or maybe you feel like that over time, because of the the nature of how the Bible, the scriptures were translated, that we don't really have an accurate translation because the way it was passed down was was orally for so long. And then these, these scribes, these people who were a part of the church, they began to write it and copy it down. And so every time they made a copy, every time they wrote it down, over time they begin to kind of interject their agenda or their, their church doctrine or their church theology. And so the Bible that we have now, the, the pages that we read now don't even resemble the words, the language, or the intent of the original authors so long ago because it's been added and changed and modified so many times over the years. Or maybe you say, man, yeah, like the Bible, that's a great book for moral instruction. Like I love the whole golden rule thing. I love the idea of of loving my neighbor, of being kind to people. I love the idea that every one of us has the capacity to do something good, but when it comes to the actual stories, not the moral teaching, but the actual stories, come on, let's be real here, people. It's a fairy tale. It's full of myths, it's full of legends, the thing that we see in there, none of those things really happened. It's not reliable, it's not true. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, last week we began a series titled, I've Got Questions. 
And for the the month of February, what we're doing is we're diving deep into the Bible, what scripture is and what it isn't. And we we began last week, and I'll just kind of pause for a moment and tell you I'm personally really excited about this series because as we go through this series, you will have the option every single day, every single week, whatever you choose, to submit different questions through the number that is on the screen. And as you submit these questions, we're compiling a list of all of these. And on the final week of the series, the last Sunday in February, we're going to take some time and just answer your questions about the Bible. But for this series, what we've been doing, if you have been here, we began last week by saying that the Bible, despite it being 66 separate books, not just one book like we kind of think of it, but it's 66 separate books written by 40 different authors spanning a time period, not the time it covers, but the time it was written was a period of 50. 1,500 years. It was written in three original languages covering three different continents where it was authored. Despite being all of those diversity, all of those different uh, contexts, all of those different languages, those different authors, and those different writing styles, what we found is that the Bible from the beginning to the end is one consistent message. The story of a God who loves his people so much that he will do anything and everything to win their hearts back so that they can live for him and glorify him forever. That's the story of the Bible. And we, we hear this and, and, and it, it, it's strange to me when I, when I talk to people, and maybe you're one of these people, and I just want to have a moment of honesty with you here. I hear people say, yeah, yeah, but Adam, I just, I just don't trust the Bible. I don't, I don't think it's reliable. I don't think it's true. And I, and I hear this and I just want to like, as the pastor in me, just kind of like pull out the hair I don't have, right? And I just want to say, whoa, 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 what do you mean you don't trust the Bible? Which, which part? You don't trust what Moses wrote? You don't trust what David wrote? Because half of what David wrote was a song and a poem. How can poems not be true and right? You, you, don't, you don't trust the, the four gospels, the story of Jesus written by four different people at four different periods of their life to make one complete story, right? It was 40 different authors. Which, which author do you not trust? Or, or maybe you think, no, 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 Adam, I, I don't trust any of it. I think all 40 authors got it wrong. I think all 66 books are unreliable. I think the time period of 1,500 years, they they had this giant conspiracy to make everything inaccurate and wrong through all of that. I think even though they were on three different continents when they were writing, somehow before communication even existed, they got together and made up a fake story. I just don't trust it. And I just wonder, maybe that's you this morning. And maybe you're not like, no, I don't trust any of it. Maybe you're like, you know what? Like, they're just parts of it I think are unreliable. Maybe because you're, maybe, maybe you're a Christ follower, maybe you're not, but there's something in our culture right now that is being kind of spoken to you or you're hearing or you're reading or you're watching on the news and you are seeing something in a worldview that does not match up with what you read in scripture and you have been forced to decide, do I believe what I see? Do I believe what I hear? Do I believe what I experience or do I believe what I read? And you have chosen to say, I believe the Bible, everything but the Bible except this. And here's the thing, when it comes to scripture, I don't think we have that choice. 
And maybe that's just me. Maybe, like, maybe I, the way I interpret the, the Christian faith of the, the, the Christ following, following Jesus life, I, I don't see anywhere in scripture or feel in my heart that I have the option, the choice to pick and choose what parts of scripture are reliable and what parts are not. Now, now sure, well, well, I, I understand that over the course of those 66 books written by 40 different authors spanning all those times, that each book is kind of written to a different cultural context, right? I understand that, that there are different genres of books, and we're going to talk about this next week, and I recognize that maybe an historical document can't be read the same way a book about poetry or prophecy or a letter to a church can be read. Each one has to be read differently in its context and its culture and the way it applies to us and what is prescriptive and what's descriptive, I get all that. And we're gonna talk about that next week. But just, here's the thing. As a Christ follower, how do we know? How, how do I know? How, how can I stand up here in front of you? How do I know and able to proclaim that the Bible is reliable? How can I say that without even just telling you what it is you would tell me to read in scripture, I can, without a shadow of a doubt, being if it's in scripture, I believe it. It's true. It's reliable. And it's accurate. And, and I know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, like, he's just going to say by faith. Right? Like, that's kind of the, 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 the Christian, uh, I don't know, crutch we use, right? When, when we can't describe something, we say, well, you just got to believe it by faith. And yeah, that's true. But I think there's also other ways that we can know for certain that the Bible is reliable, that we can know it is true, that we can know it is for us for all of our life. I believe personally that the Bible is everything over and through and under my life. It guides everything I do. And here's why this matters. Because when it comes to following Jesus, the foundation of everything we do for him and believe about him has to be built on truth. There is absolute truth in scripture that applies to everything. And regardless of my circumstance, regardless of my feelings, regardless of my experience, scripture is reliable and true. So how do we know that? If you're taking notes, I wanna give you just kind of four things this morning. And so the first one is this, the Bible has archeological support. The Bible has archeological support. Now, truthfully, <laughs> For years, most scholars did not think this was the case. In fact, for years, it seemed like most scholars would say, every time we find something that is archeological where it should be and the Bible says it is, it's just not there. And so therefore, they had to wrestle with, is this thing really true or not? But what's funny is as archeological digs have gone more and more, as research has gone deeper and deeper, as we have discovered more and more in things, what we have found is that there is more and more evidence pointing to the validity of scripture. Let me, let me just give you an example of this. In the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the, if you're not familiar with this, it's one of the original kind of four books of the New Testament, right? The first four, these four gospels as they're called, because they're the, the message of Jesus. They tell about his birth, his life, death, resurrection. They kind of tell the story of Jesus in a historical kind of biography form, if you would say. Well, one of these, the Gospel of Luke uh, begins his story with this. It says in Luke chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, this is how Luke begins it. He says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, 
His brother Philip was the tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis. And Licinius was the tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, before we go any further, I just want you guys to know, that was five years of seminary and like $100,000, just to say that right there. So... Uh, yeah, that's job security, you know, like you can say I'm all wrong, but my way is right in this aspect right here. So, uh, but here, here's what I want you to see. Lynn, let's just leave the verse up there for a second. It's undeniable when you read the way that Luke opens his gospel, he was concerned with historical accuracy. What does he not say? He doesn't say in a land far, far away. He doesn't say once upon a time. Luke's not telling a myth. He's not telling a legend. He is concerned precisely with historical detail. He wants to be able to show his readers when and where and who and how the story that he is describing occurred. Precision matters for him. Now, for years, historians doubted most of Luke's gospel account because of these two verses. Why? Because Luke tells all of these people who were alive and reigning when Jesus was born, when the, when the, I guess when the word of the Lord came to Zechariah before Jesus' birth. And so he's telling, this is who is in charge, this is who is in charge, this is who is in charge. But there's one guy in that list, Licinius. And that guy, most historians would say, Luke, you made this guy up. And what happened was they had found one Licinius in all of history that had ever reigned in the Roman Empire. The problem was... His reign was 50 years later. And so historians, archaeologists, for years said, Luke, you got it wrong, which makes us believe that you were actually writing later than we thought. So maybe it wasn't really you, Luke. Maybe it was somebody else writing in your place, telling the story of what they had heard, passed down over time. Therefore, because you got the date wrong, the people wrong, and the time wrong, none of your story is accurate or right. But then, one day when they were digging, they found an inscription. And on this inscription, it describes during the reign when there were two Augustuses, two Caesars, a person who ruled by the name of Licinius. And they recognized, they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. there's only been one time period in history where there were two Augustuses, and that was the reign of Tiberius. And all of a sudden, they matched the dates, and Luke was right. And here's what's interesting. Over and over and over again, with every single new dig, with every single new discovery, with every single new bit of research, more and more sites, all the information we have found, all the hundreds and thousands of artifacts and places and all the different things have done nothing but confirm what scripture says. In fact, there's a, a famous archaeologist by the name of Nelson Gluck, and he says this. He, he's an Israeli uh, specialist. He says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a single biblical references. Scores of archaeological findings have done what? They have either been made which confirm in outline or exact detail the historical statements that we have in the Bible. Think about that for a minute. 
of the hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of things that have been discovered in Israel and its surrounding nations. There has not been a single thing, not one thing that has ever contradicted the pages of scripture, all 66 books by 40 different authors over 1,500 years on three different continents. Every single artifact that has ever been found has done nothing but confirm more and more that what we read in the Bible is true and reliable and accurate. Folks, I don't know if you know this, but there is no other religion in the world that can say that. In fact, take, take just one, take, take the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon tells the story of, of the Americas and what it was like in the, the period of 600 BC to 400 AD. And it tells the names of all these places and these peoples and these artifacts and these cities and all of this stuff. But the Smithsonian Institute headquartered right here in the DC area, they have said that there has not been one single bit of evidence ever found in any of the Americas that actually matches what the Book of Mormon says. Not one. But scripture, they have not found one that contradicts it, that is wrong. If the Bible was so inaccurate or so unreliable, you would, you would think, surely by now we would have found something. But no, we get the opposite. Everything just continues to confirm what it says. First, it has archaeological support. Second, if you're taking notes, how do we know the Bible is reliable? Because it has been accurately translated. It has been accurately translated. I think some of us, I think some of us maybe view the, the Bible and the process of how we got it as that old telephone game. You guys ever play the telephone game? You know what I'm talking about? No one has ever played the telephone game. Yeah, I, come on, guys. We're having hot dogs and stuff today. Like, you know, like we got a, there's a Super Bowl, and I don't know, the Cowboys aren't playing, and that's probably normal. Neither are the commanders, I guess. But uh, not that they ever will, probably. I don't know. So I'm just kidding, guys. I'm just kidding. Listen, so the telephone game, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, um, the telephone game is basically you, you line up a bunch of children or adults, it's fun to do it as well, and one person thinks of a phrase and they whisper to someone and then they whisper to the next person and it goes down the line and you get to the very end and they have to say what they heard and nine times out of 10, it does not match. Why? Because what happens is as it is whispered and passed down orally from person to person, the, they get it wrong, they mistranslate it, they change it, they uh, intentionally, if you're a middle school boy, you add new words to it, you just want to be funny and you do things and you say inappropriate, it just happens, right? Well, here's the deal. I think for, for many of us, when we think of the reliability of Scripture and how we have the Bible that we have today, we feel like it was a little bit of a telephone game. The story originally happened, but then as it's been passed down from person to person and then written down and copied from person to person, that the Bible that we have now no longer is accurate and makes sense it's not even telling the story anymore. New things have been injected to it. Words have been modified. Things have been changed. So how can we base our trust and our faith and our reliability on a book that we don't even know if it's accurate or true? Now, historians have a, a two-part process for how they determine the accuracy of a translation of ancient documents. First, they look at the number of documents that they can find. 
They try to gather as many kind of ancient historical documents they can that relate to that story, relate to that thing. That way they can see all the differences that occurred through all of the different documents. The next thing they do, secondly, is what they try to do is they try to see how those manuscripts relate to the earliest and the original stories. What they want to see is they want to say, okay, we found all these documents. What's the earliest one? Okay, this is the earliest one. What's the latest one? Okay, this is this one. How did the story change or morph over time? Because what what historians know, and and I think we all know this, is that legends and myths typically don't kind of create themselves or pop up during the lifespan of the original audience. Because if all of a sudden, you know, you're alive and when, you, when, you, when you're alive and you're walking around and people begin to make legends and myths up about you, you can be like, no, 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 we were there. We saw this. This was different. And so what they want to do is they want to see how the myths and the legends have progressed and changed over time. So with those two criteria in mind, I just want to walk us through how the Bible mainly compares to other kind of ancient historical documents that historians believe are reliable and true in our world. And so you'll see these up here on the list. The first one is we've got a book by Tacitus. And Tacitus' book, we have 33 copies of this book. So maybe that's a lot, maybe it's not, you tell me. But we have 750 years between when it was originally written and the earliest manuscript. Right, So the earliest one we have right now is still 750 years older than the initial, and we have 33 copies. The next work that we have that historians believe in is Herodotus. We have 109 copies of this one, but check this out. We have 1,400-year gap between the one we have and when it was written. And they're like, but that's okay, right? We still believe it because we have 109 copies. And so of those 109 copies, we still see consistency. We still see one common translation that happens. The next book we have here. This is Plato, some of Plato's work. We have 210 copies of this one, and you can see we're getting more and more. And so we have 210 copies that span about a 1,300 year between when it was originally written and when we have it. Does that make sense? Uh, The next one you're gonna see is from Caesar, and we have 251 copies, and there was a 900 year difference between these. And this is a a story about a a specific war that happened in Rome, and it's very detailed, but historians would say that every single one of these books is accurate and reliable to the history that it was writing about in that time period. And last one we have is maybe the one you're familiar with, Homer's Iliad. We, we read this in high school sometimes. We read it in college if we're an English major. And in this one, we have 1,700, just over 1,750 copies, and we have a 400-year gap between the original and what the earliest transcript we have. Now, don't, don't change slides yet. When you see these, right, we've got from 33 copies all the way down to the most is 1,800 copies or so. And they range anywhere from a couple hundred years to about 1,400 years. When you read this, here's a question I want you to mentally think about. What would be the number of manuscripts that you would need to view the New Testament as reliable? Would it be a couple hundred? 50? A thousand? Like, you you can see the rest of them on the list. And not only that, what would be the time gap that you would need from when the original was written and the earliest we have for you to consider it reliable? Check this out. When it comes to just the New Testament alone, We have 24,000 copies. And the earliest is only 30 years from the original. If you add the New Testament to this, or the Old Testament, we have a total of 68,000 original manuscripts. That is unheard of in ancient history. Historians believe every one of those other books to be reliable and true And some of them, we only have 30 copies. 
when it comes to the pages of scripture, we have over 60,000 copies. Now, that's unheard of. The number of translations we have, there is just no other book in all of history where we have this many. There is nothing that exists. And here's what amazes me about all of these 20, let's just do the New Testament, of all of these 24,000 manuscripts that we have that date back to just 30 years after the initial events occurred. So these are very fresh, very new, very kind of detailed in what was going on. Of all of these manuscripts, when they compare them and look at them, of the 20,000 lines of text that is in all of them, and check this out, there is only a 0.2% difference. That is 40 lines. That means in 24,000 manuscripts, the difference is a mere 300 words. That is unbelievable. And that 0.2%, 95% of that is just spelling. Because here's, here, here's, here's the thing. When the, the Bible was translated from scribe to scribe to scribe, these scribes were professionals. They had a job. They had a career to earn money for their family. And so they, they took their job very seriously. They were detailed and meticulous, and they knew what they were doing to the point that most of the scholars would say, when a scribe was translating any book, not just the canon of scripture, but any of the ancient Greek or ancient Roman or ancient Persian or other Mediterranean knowledge, when they were translating any of those books, there was usually a 15 to 20 step process of how they translated those. And when they were fully done, like even the New Testament, when they were fully done writing all 20,000 lines of text, someone else, an independent fact checker, would come in and look through it. And if they found one mistake, they made them rewrite it. If they found two mistakes, that scribe was fired. The accuracy and the detail and the reliability of the Bible that you hold in your hands each and every day that you have access to is beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most reliable and accurate translation of any ancient document that has ever existed in mankind. It is true to its original intent. Not only that, right? Like you have the archeological support, you have the kind of translation support, you also just have the fact that it contains eyewitness accounts. It contains eyewitness accounts. Now, because of the, the area we live in, and my family and I are still adapting and getting used to this area, but I personally am a huge fan of history, like Civil War, Revolutionary War, and my oldest son, Emerson, he's slowly becoming into it where he is beginning to learn about things, and so we're excited to get the chance to go and visit battlefields that are around our area. Now, let's just pretend that every single one of us were major history buffs and we care deeply about learning about the Civil War. If you had two options at this moment to go and research the Civil War, would you go and find a book that somebody who saw it, lived it, and experienced it, but wrote about it 30 years later? Or would you go now and find someone who is alive now who never saw it and never experienced it, but is writing about it about 200 years later? You would obviously choose the first. Why? Because as we all know, when we were in college or high school or grad school, original sources matter. We want the earliest eyewitness accounts. We want to know who was there, what they felt, what they saw, what they experienced, what they went through. 
I don't know if you know this, but if you take just the, the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, what you're going to find is that each one of those books was written by someone who was either an eyewitness themselves or somebody who went around to multiple eyewitnesses to ask their story as an investigative journalist and then write down what he recorded them saying as eyewitnesses. What we see in Scripture over and over and over again is it's not stories written several hundred years later by people who had heard from their second cousin what happened that day. No, no, no. It is by people who were there and experienced the moment and went through it and know about it. And we're going to talk about this in week four, most likely, when we talk about some of the gospels that didn't make scripture. But here's what scripture says about itself. Second Peter verses, or first Peter 1, 2, 16 says this. It says, Peter said, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like scripture saying, hey, we didn't make this stuff up, but we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. We were eye witnesses. Now, there is not a single other religious text that claims that. Multiple eyewitnesses experiencing the events. Take, take the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, you have a guy by the name of Joseph Smith who goes in and he reads. He has a, a personal vision when he is by himself about something he saw in a crystals that were sitting in a hat and then he recorded it. It was personal, just him. Take the, the Quran, Muhammad, he went into a cave by himself and had a personal vision of what he was supposed to write down. And so he, by himself, had the vision and wrote it down. There were no confirming multiple eyewitness accounts. But in scripture, just in the four first four books alone of the New Testament, and then you have all the rest and even the Old Testament, we have multiple eyewitnesses that says, that is what I saw, that is what I heard, that is what happened. And we have extra kind of outside of the Bible, non-biblical historians like Josephus and others who also said, I interviewed eyewitnesses and they said the exact same thing and they were not people who were the apostles or disciples because people who saw it talked about what they saw and experienced because eyewitness information matters. Now, you may say, that's great, Adam. That still doesn't mean it's reliable and true. Maybe, maybe there was this big conspiracy where these people got together and they said, okay, Let's figure out what our story is going to be, right? Like, let's, let's, let's figure out how we're going to write these four gospels and how we're going to make them tell this story of the, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of this guy by the name of Jesus. And let's make sure we get it right. That way we can say we saw and experienced the same. I mean, it's a conspiracy theory. Maybe, but I don't know about you. But if I was a church leader, which I am, but if I was a church leader in the first century and I was making up a story about the hero of my story, I probably wouldn't put in some of the things I put in. Let me, let me give you an example. We read in the, in, the, in the Gospels in the New Testament that Jesus, the hero of the story, right? We talked about this last week, that he is the one that all of the Old Testament points to. He is the, the promised Messiah, the Savior that is to come. And when we see that he is the hero, why? If they're going to make up a story, why would the New Testament writers choose to make him die by crucifixion? The most shameful, the most humiliating, the most debilitating way for any first century person to die, why would they intentionally create a hurdle so difficult that the first time anyone heard the story, all they would say was, nothing good can ever come from a crucifixion. He must have been a criminal. No, no, no. If you're going to make up a story about your hero, he dies a much different way. But also that, if, if you're going to make up a story about your church leaders, 
You don't make one of them deny Jesus three times on the most important night of his life. If you're gonna make up a story about the people who are shaping the future faith, you don't make them people who constantly doubt and question what their master is teaching them. If you're making up a story about a guy who ends up by the name of Paul who writes half of the New Testament, you don't make him the most hated and feared and despised Jew in the history of the world. No. The reason we know it's accurate is by the very existence of their failures and their faults in the story. Because no one in their right mind begins a new religion based on lies with failure and faults of its leaders. That's unheard of. So the very fact that we have these eyewitness accounts that are raw and real shows us that it is accurate and reliable. So we have these eyewitness accounts. Next, if you're taking notes, we know that the Bible is prophetically accurate. We know it is prophetically accurate. How many of you, and just show of hands, even online, you can hit the little emoji hand button or Fredericksburg, you know, when you see you participate. How many of you would say you love watching movies? Just come on, participate with me, people. Okay, now, how many of you would say when you watch a movie, you, like if it's like a crime, drama, murder, mystery movie, you love to try to guess and figure out who did it ahead of time? Yeah, dude, my wife and I love this. Like when we're watching a movie, we're like, oh, I think it's him, I think it's her. Well, look what she did, why are they talking like this? And we're trying to solve this thing, why? Because I think it's our way of kind of exercising our gift of prophecy in that moment, right? Like we wanna be, we wanna be someone who can predict the future. Here's what I love about scripture. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, scripture was predicting the future. It was giving a prophecy about the hero, the savior, the Messiah who was going to come and rescue the world. And there are dozens and dozens of these prophecies. In fact, back in the 1950s, a professor by the name of Peter Stoner, uh, he decided to do some research about statistics and mathematics around the, uh, the odds of some of the prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus. And so he, he worked with his students at his, professor, or his college, and they made all these statistics, crunched all these numbers, and they sent them off to this kind of like governing board of statistics people who fact-checked everything they researched, and they came back and said, your numbers are correct. And I just want to share some of these numbers with you. They looked at one prophecy, for instance, and they would say, hey, like the, the odds of you know, the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, and they researched the population that would have been in first century AD in Bethlehem, and they ran the numbers. And so they, they ran the odds. There's about 324 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. They ran the odds. What is the chance of one, uh, like eight of those prophecies being fulfilled in one person? Take a look at this number. The chance of eight prophecies being fulfilled. Now, they realized, they said, that's a hard number to put your mind around. So here's how they described this number, just eight prophecies out of the 324. Check this out. They said, imagine if you had a silver dollar, and you put a big X on that silver dollar, and you went into the state of Texas, and you put that silver dollar anywhere in the state of Texas, and then somebody else came in behind you and dumped two feet of silver dollars across the entire state. You took one person, blindfolded them, and said, go for a walk across Texas. When you think you are where that silver dollar is, reach down and pick it up and you get one shot. That's the odds of one person fulfilling eight prophecies. They ran the number for 16 and came up with this. 
That's a lot of zeros, by the way. They ran the number and they kind of stopped. They said this number, this, this number amazes me because they tried to explain it. And they said, picture a three-dimensional circle that extends all the way out to Pluto. All of our kind of universe, all of our kind of galaxy or whatever the word is there. And they said it's a three-dimensional shape. Fill that entire shape with silver dollars and go find the one blindfolded in the middle of it. That's the odds. Then they said, okay, let's go to a different number. Let's look at one person fulfilling 48 of the prophecies. And it's one to the 157th power. They said a visual of this, just 48 of the 324 prophecies, would be the equivalent, don't miss this, not of an atom, but of one of the small electrons that make up an atom, randomly finding that in all of the known universe. They said this number is higher than the number of atoms we think exist in the universe. And Jesus fulfilled them. All 324. And you say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's obviously made up. No. Because the manuscripts, the the 60,000 manuscripts we have, they don't change after Jesus' birth. Thousands of years before him, the prophecies were the same after his birth. So obviously they didn't go back and redact and change and edit. No, 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 no. It's consistent through the entire thing. Matthew 26, 56, Jesus says this about himself. He says, but this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophet as recorded in the scriptures. Everything points to him. How do we know scripture is reliable? Because mathematically, there is no chance anyone could have ever made that up. It speaks to a God who creates and organizes and ordains and sustains. Here's what I want you to see this morning. Here's, Here's the point. The Bible is reliable and true. Sure, you have the choice not to believe it, but I'm just gonna tell you, it's reliable and true. You see, that's the problem when it comes to scripture. It's not that we think it's unreliable. It's not that we think it's not true. It's that we don't like what it says. We don't like that it confronts our sin in a way that makes us uncomfortable. We don't like that it says things about our human heart that we don't believe about ourselves. We don't like the fact that what we see and experience in our loved ones and our friends and our community and in our nation is the opposite of what scripture sometimes says and we are forced to choose. Do I go with the flow? Do I go with what I feel? Do I go with my heart or do I stand on the absolute truth of scripture? And let me just tell you, if you continue to pursue what feels right, what sounds good, what looks good, you will always steer further and further away from the absolute truth of God, the reliability of scripture because it is true and accurate. For thousands and thousands of years, it has been questioned, attacked, studied, and dissected more than any other book in all of history, but yet it remains. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 22, 25 says this. It says, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. 
So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. You are to love each other deeply with all of your heart. For one, because you have been born again, not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It is reliable and it is true. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that for thousands and thousands of years, it has stood the test, that it is true and it is reliable and it is accurate. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, man, I don't know. Here's the thing about scripture. It's not just full of facts and places and figures and numbers and events. It is living and it is active. And probably the most convincing thing about the reliability of scripture is that still, after several thousand years, it changes people's hearts. It takes dead things and makes them alive. It takes old things and makes them new. And maybe, just maybe, that's what you need. To stop questioning, to stop doubting, to stop getting hung up on the little details because you'll have a, a lifetime of learning and following and maybe one day you'll never know all the answers but you will stand before him in heaven and you'll be able to ask every question that you have ever thought about the Bible. But maybe in this moment right here, right now, the only thing that you need to do is stop trying to live your own way. Stop trying to, to solve all the answers and instead just surrender to the fact that there is a God who loves you so much that 2,000 years ago, he sent his son, Jesus, into the world to be your savior, to be the one that helps you turn and repent from your sins and turn towards him and live for all of eternity to be new, no longer dead, but a new creation that is alive in him. That is the power and the reliability of scripture in your life. I've seen it in hundreds of lives over the last 20 years. And maybe today is the day you respond. And so just in the stillness of this moment, whether you're here in Stafford joining us online or down in Fredericksburg, if you wanna give your life to Jesus for the first time, to trust that he is the hero and savior of your life, you wanna repent and turn from your sins, would you just be bold enough to raise your hand right where you are? Jesus, I need you your grace. If you raised your hand, I want you to pray with me. Father, I am a sinner. Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my King. This morning, I turn from my sins and turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.